Indian company Adani wants to build the multi-billion dollar Carmichael coal mine inland and west of Mackay. Once complete, it will be the largest coal mine in Australia and one of the largest in the world. The mine alone would produce 60 million tonnes of coal or more a year. And despite the climate risk of this project, both the federal and Queensland governments have given it full approval. Bill McKibben is the founder of 350.org, an author and a Gandhi Peace Prize award winner. He is an expert on climate change and has this to say about the Adani coal mine. The Adani coal mine is one of those projects that it boggles the mind even to think about. Uh, this, if it's built, will be the largest coal mine on planet Earth. Um, uh, a vision so out of scale with the world that we now inhabit that it's hard to think of anything crazier. Um, this is 18th century technology on a massive scale in a 21st century that's already being overwhelmed by the effects of climate change. As we speak, the Arctic and the Antarctic have the least ice that we've ever recorded at this stage of the year. Um, we've watched in the last 12 months as the Great Barrier Reef has begun to disintegrate in the face of warm and more acidic water. We desperately need to keep most of the carbon that we know about underground. And that's why this is such a crazy idea right now. This is personal for Millie Telford, an Abundjalung woman. In 2015, she was named the Australian Geographic Society's Young Conservationist of the Year. And she now runs SEED, working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to protect their country from climate change. Adani's proposed Carmichael coal mine in central Queensland is closer than ever. This is a mega mine that will wreck the reef, cook the climate and trash the rights of Indigenous peoples. Even after years of resistance from Indigenous people and the Australian public, the Queensland government and the federal government have thrown their support behind this Indian coal mining magnate. Fossil fuel projects like Adani's mega coal mine um, will continue to threaten our ability to live on country, whether that be from the actual destruction of the land um, or the climate chaos that it will create. 16-year-old Shooters Cat Martinez was recently in Australia. He has seen Indigenous communities in the US and Canada be destroyed by mining. Shooters Cat has first-hand experience of being part of a community who have so far stopped one of the world's largest fossil fuel projects from being built. It's my understanding that there is a huge proposition of an infrastructure project called the Adani Coal Mine that's going to be opened up here in Australia. It's going to be the biggest of its kind um, in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, opening up new projects like this is like very, very threatening. You know, we, we, we saw huge impacts like this in my community and, you know, with the issue of fracking. If you look at the crude oil extraction in, in Canada, the tar sands, it's just totally obliterated the environment there, um, the impacts on the water, on the indigenous communities there. If you look at what happened with the Keystone XL pipeline going, from, you know, one of the biggest fossil fuel infrastructure projects, um, pumping, you know, so much oil through the, the United States and going through indigenous land, going through, you know, the land of, of ranchers and farmers, and we got Obama to, to reject this pipeline. And um, if you look at what's happening at Standing Rock, North Dakota, where millions of people have seen, thousands of people have been, and hundreds of thousands of people have been supporting this the entire way when it comes to, an, and, you know, this indigenous community is just fighting for their water, for their land, and for their children. I think 
there is a lot of power in protest. There is a lot of power in standing in solidarity and standing for what we believe in. There's a lot of power in understanding what it is that we are standing for and what the alternatives are. To get Adani coal from the Galilee Basin to the coast so it can be shipped to India, it must travel 390 kilometres via train to the Abbott Point coal port. From there, it will be loaded onto tankers, which will skirt the Great Barrier Reef as part of its journey via the Coral Sea to India, where it will be burned in old and inefficient coal-fired power plants. Dr Michael Mann is considered one of the most qualified and respected climate scientists in the world. Well, we're already seeing devastating impacts of climate change. Well, right now, uh, here in Sydney, we're experiencing near record levels uh, of heat. And uh, if we continue down the road that we're on, business as usual, we continue to burn fossil fuels, then by the middle of this century, what we think of today as a tremendously uncomfortable, dangerous heat wave will become a typical summer day. That's what most summer days will feel like. And the worst summer days, there is no analog for what that will be like. Well, I mean, we're already putting tremendous stress uh, on coral reefs around the world. And the Great Barrier Reef, of course, one of the, the, the more striking examples of a coral reef, of a, a magnificent, amazing uh, coral reef that is already under threat uh, from uh, increased bleaching, from global warming, from warming ocean temperatures, from increased acidification of ocean waters, from the CO2 that's building up in the atmosphere. And ironically, uh, these uh, ships, these tankers, uh, would add yet another insult to a system that is already stressed almost to the breaking point. There is another way. We don't have to accept this destructive project. The Adani coal mine is not a done deal. Together we can change this story. We can turn this climate catastrophe into the story of our move away from polluting coal towards a renewable future. Here in Australia we don't need Adani's mega coal mine. We're one of the sunniest and windiest countries in the world. We have what it takes to transition to renewable energy. We just need to get on with building the solutions. We need uh, government to be a willing partner uh, in leading us uh, away from uh, our reliance on fossil fuels that's destroying our climate and planet. We need government incentives that will help us solve this problem, uh, that will help us make this transition that we need to uh, make towards renewable energy. Adani is seeking to build the world's biggest coal mine. Let that sink in for a minute. There's no way that we can meet the planet's carbon budget with projects like this. In fact, this one's so huge that it'll help tip the planet over into climate chaos all by itself. To stop this coal mine and turn the corner on climate change, it's going to take all of us. I think when we understand what it is that we're fighting for, and we're passionate enough about it, New Orleans. Together we can stop Adani. Join us. We don't need Adani. They can't come back into it. they can't come into our backyard to destroy it. Because they can't even get their act together to look after their own backyard. And that's the truth, because you've just got to look at some of the things that are happening over there in that land. And it's not pretty. Let me tell you something that worked for us a long time ago, and it's still working. 
Yes, and I was there in 1971-72 to set up the first Aboriginal tent embassy. We stood strong then, and every step and footprint was counted for what the future is for today. And as people like yourselves that are here are still staying, staying very strong, very, very strong for the future from what was happening then. And along the way before it, you know, we had people doing the things that we wanted done. Aboriginal people were on missions and reserves, fringe dwellers. It didn't stop us from wanting the things that are needed today for all of us, a clean living. We want our children to know and our great, great, great grandchildren, what we're going to leave them, that the Great Barrier Reef can be there for them forever. Not a broken down promise, the things that come from our governments of not realising the pain that they're causing that beautiful reef and the climate that we share with the rest of the world. It's not just us on the planet here in Australia. We're looking after things that are always going to be here and for us to look behind us. When we look behind, we, I always say to my grandchildren and my great-grannies, I say, when Nana's walking, I can always look behind to know that footprint's coming up behind me and that footprint is you. I say that to Savani, to Christopher and Michael. You know, what are we going to do when these kids grow up, when they're in their teens, starting to realise that the future wasn't there for them. They'll be wondering why, like the reef, the Great Barrier Reef, it will all be like that. We'll be gasping for air because the pollution of such tremendous atrocities that will take over Australia if that mine comes into here. And the government needs to be realising that and know it. This is the most peaceful demonstration I've ever been at. <laughs> I'm, I'm dumbfounded. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so what do we want? No dummy. What do we want? No dummy. That's what we want. No dummy. I can now say I've been here demonstrating with you. And that's what life's all about. Forget about being white. Forget about being black. We're all one colour when it comes to saving our planet. I'm coming from that region of India, which is known for its biodiversity hotspot. This is a narrow strip of 440 kilometers. One side is a Western Ghat, beautiful. Another side is Arabian Sea. 
and this is known as Konkan region of Maharashtra. This is the same region which is famous for export of Alfonso mangoes. I'm sure you must have eaten Alfonso sometime the other. The livelihood of the people depends on basically fishing, agriculture land, and also upland. In this region, there are so many endemic species, birds, and precisely for that, it's known for its biodiversity hotspot in the world. And this is the same region where, on the name of so-called development, 52 mining leases have been sanctioned. And this is the same region of 400 kilometers where, on the name of development, power projects are coming up. And out of that, 18 power projects which are in the pipeline, 16 are coal power projects, one is a gas, and one which is there is of not only the largest of my state, but not only largest of India, but perhaps the largest proposed nuclear power plant of the world that is in Jaitapur. So I'm coming from the region of project affected communities region. And when in my region, there was proposed coal projects, we thought of going to our neighboring state where Adani had his project, that was in Mundra. Because we thought the best way of learning for our fisher folks who have never gone to school, the farmers who have got their very low literacy level, women who have never been to school. So we thought best learning and understanding would be actually going and visiting that area. And we went to visit Mundra area. We met our brothers, Fisher folks brothers there. We met farmers in that area. And what we saw was a disaster, real disaster. We could not really see a clean sea anywhere. We met thousands of fisher folks who had lost their livelihood. We met thousands of farmers who cannot really cultivate what they used to cultivate before. We met so many citizens who were complaining about so, many, so much of our health issues. And now recently there had been a panel of experts who have done the research and they're finding it's they're available for everyone to see. I still remember in that area when we went to visit, there was one lady called Najma. She was a fisher folk. And she was very agitated, very disturbed, very agitated, very angry. And we had somebody from government also. So he was all the time interrupting her and telling her, oh, but the farmers have got the compensation package by Adani. The farmers have got some jobs in the coal, coal projects. So but still, why are you so angry? Because in India, farmers have got a land. So when there is a compulsory land acquisition act in my state, in my country, where the government is a predominant predomain of your land. 
and government decides what's the public purpose and can take away your land on the name of public interest. But unfortunately, fisher folks never get compensated because they don't have a title on the fish, uh, on the sea. So they don't own any title on the sea, so they are never compensated for it. So he said, if the governments have to give the real good compensation package and the company has to give a real good compensation package and Adani is ready to, do, ready to give very good compensation package for you as a fisher folks, what would you like to have? And you know what she said? She said, please ask Adani to create another Arabian Sea and give us. <laughs> because we are in the thousands. And we only know to do traditional fishing. We only know from the generation to stay on the sea and live on this sea. And from there we went day in our region and there had been a day and night protest, mass mobilization, filing petition. There are more than 30 local self-government institute which passed general body resolution that they would not like to have their region in that region, they don't want coal. In that region, they don't want mining. In that region, they don't want nuclear. And they would like to have their region as declared as eco-sensitive zone. And when the protest was really at its peak, media was giving a lot of coverage. And there were companies like Adani wanting to come there. And there are many other companies and the nuclear power projects, collaboration with French government. That time, our chief minister of our Maharashtra state came to meet us there. And then, looking at the whole protest and resistance movement, he increased the compensation package, he increased the cost of the land ten, five times more than what was before. And he declared it in a very big rally. And nobody clapped. <laughs> and then he was quite surprised that five times more the compensation is offered and you're not clapping. So later on, he was with the media, with his three cabinet minister, and there was one, a lady, Sarpanch, we call her, like uh, president of the local self-government. We have a reserv reservation for women, so women also get chance of becoming a president of the local self-government. And she was a president of local self-government. And she was like from the rural area, never gone to school, and she was the head of her local self-government. And he said, let me know what is your problem now. We have increased five times compensation. And she was like, you know, very stunned, and she didn't know what to say in front of the camera and in the public. And she said, oh, no, 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 I have no, no problem. He said, but still, I can see that you want to say something. Why don't you see freely? I'm here to discuss, negotiate with you. And she said, now, my only problem is I can't go, I can't get to sleep in the night. And he said, Oh, so you believe in this green movement, you believe in this whole so-called environmentalist that this area is going to be a disaster, you are going to lose your livelihood, and perhaps because of that, you're not getting sleep and you're feeling tense about it. She said, dear Chief Minister, I can't get the sleep because the pillow on which I'm resting my head in the night and in the whole of the night, I'm going to keep my head on that pillow. Below that pillow, there is a poisonous snake. You know it is a poisonous snake. I know it is a poisonous snake. 
company knows very well that is a poisonous snake but still behalf of the government and behalf of the corporate you are telling me to rest peacefully and government and the environment clearance will take care of everything and how can i sleep so people from my region they can't sleep all the more women can't sleep and precisely that i'm here to share my experience and to appeal to you i am here just to give you a message of our community that what our business houses from india wants to do in your country the aspirations and dreams of our business houses like adani is far different than the aspirations and dreams of common indian citizen and we are not those we are not their representatives we don't want adani to come here we don't want adani to do coal mine in india we don't want adani to do coal mine here because it's not that we are only against adani it's not that we are only against coal mine it's not that we are against thermal power it's not that we are against nuclear power but we want to save our mother earth we are committed to save our planet we are committed to save our mother earth and we are committed to provide and create a space for all the human beings in this world to live with dignity and precisely for that i am here we come from the dreaming we come from the beginning of time from the water spirit which gave us life the creator which gave us everything we are only here because of that and we are here surviving on this planet on this continent now because we aboriginal people connected to that land once that land's gone once it's destroyed there's nothing we will cease to exist 18 months ago our people came together and said no to mining giant adani they want to dig up the carmichael the biggest coal mine in australian history on our country we told them we will not let them take away our rights and destroy our land and to take their shut up money and go home they didn't listen So in March 2015, we launched our public campaign to defend our traditional homelands from Adani's destruction. Our people have organized, we've rallied, we've joined together to let the world know about the fight that we have here in Australia and in Queensland and the tremendous task that it is to take on a mining company when we know that the legislation in this country is stacked against us. We took our fight to the community, to the media, to the parliament. We alerted the UN to the trampling of our rights. Over 100,000 people stood with us. Our supporters helped us to travel to the boardrooms of the world's biggest banks, so we could get the message to them in person that we do not consent to this devastating mine, and that it's bad investment, and that they should not fund it. Many banks ruled out supporting Adani. We met with Standard Chartered. They came out and said publicly they will no longer be funding Adani or any part of the Carmichael. We also met with First Nations people to share our struggle. They now stand strong with us. We know the disastrous effects the release of this carbon from the Carmichael mine would have on a global scale. In the federal court, we exposed the Dani's lies about jobs and benefits and their disregard for us as people and for the things we hold sacred and dear. We showed how the native title tribunal was duped by these lies and ran roughshod over our rights. But the Dani are relentless bullies and are supported by the Queensland and federal governments. 
Today, they are still pushing the go-ahead and destroy our homelands with their coal mine. They will stop our dreaming. Where will the song go? What will the song be? There'll be nothing left. We're showing up, we're stepping up, we're taking on the fight. The last 18 months has been the biggest fight of our lives. We are still here, and no still means no. Now is the time for us to stand stronger than ever, to step up to the fight. We're protecting Wangan and Jagalingu country from irreversible destruction, from complete devastation. We will continue to fight against the Adani Carmichael mine. Let's stay strong so that Adani and our governments finally understand when we say no, we mean no. As an Aboriginal um, and South Islander woman, um, from the Mijibul clan of the Bunjalung Nation. I also want to pay my respects to um, our ancestors amongst us, um, elders who are here in the room, um, and all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who've joined us here tonight. Um, there's so many of our mob right around the country who are fighting for our people, um, and so I want to all acknowledge all those people as well. It's so important to acknowledge the ongoing struggle of First Nations people here in this country, and to acknowledge how we are still facing um, colonisation in a modern context today. But it's also really important to remind ourselves of the strength and the resiliency that has allowed us to still be here today. I also want to specifically acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu people um, and other traditional owners whose country is threatened by Adani's coal project. As you can see from the video um, that we just saw, the strength and resiliency of the Wangan and Jagalingu people is extraordinary but it's also extraordinarily terrifying. We're all here in this room tonight because we want to stop Adani. But first and foremost, the fight of the First Nations people whose country is on the line, it's a whole different story. And it's a story that can only be told by the people themselves. So being here tonight, I'm speaking on behalf of myself as an Aboriginal woman and the SEED Indigenous Youth Climate Network, who stand as separate, but in solidarity with the traditional owners who are on the front lines of Adani's bullying to get this coal project off the ground. So I'm here to talk to you tonight about why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people right around this country are standing up for climate justice in hope that all of you, and I can see all your faces in this room, <laughs> um, will join us too. As the national co-director of the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, I have one of the best jobs in the world. Um, building up the next generation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people who are passionate and creative and committed um, to doing everything that it takes to protect our country, our culture and our communities from the causes and impacts of climate change. As a 22-year-old Aboriginal woman um, growing up on the north coast of New South Wales, um, Bunjalung countries um, up near Byron Bay, for those of you that know it, it's very beautiful, um, but growing up there, I've been a witness to the impacts of climate change the majority of my life. It was when I started witnessing the changes in the local environment around my home, including severe coastal erosion from increased cyclones along the east coast of Australia, that I started to become concerned. At the time, I was also learning about climate change at school um, and learning about the impacts that it was having on people around the world. And so I started to connect the dots um, between what I was learning at school and about who I am as an Aboriginal person and the injustices faced by Indigenous peoples. And I realised that we had to do something about it. And as Indigenous people, we have a huge responsibility. 
What I also realised, though, is that although climate change impacts everyone, the, the impacts aren't evenly distributed. And too often it's the people who've, faced, who've done the least to cause the issue that face the most severe consequences. At the core of this crisis is the loss of Indigenous land, culture and livelihoods. Furthermore, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, the majority of our population is under 25. And alongside our non-Indigenous brothers, sisters, cousins, family, it's young people that are inheriting the decisions, um, that inheriting the consequences of decisions that we haven't even been a, a part of making. And so that's why a few years ago we launched SEED, um, which is a growing network of um, young people right around the country as a branch of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. What many people don't realise is that our mob are on the front lines of the causes and the impacts of climate change. From rising sea levels in the Torres Strait and other low-lying islander communities, droughts, heat waves, floods. On top of this, our land has been dug up and destroyed ever since colonisation. Furthermore, our communities have been fighting for years for better housing. We just heard Annie Matilda say that, you know, in her youth, she's been a part of setting up the tent embassy here. So many of our mob have been fighting for basic human services like health and education and access to clean drinking water. Climate change makes all of these issues worse. It's not just a matter of the environment. It's an issue of social um, and of social justice and Indigenous rights. We know that the mining and the burning of fossil fuels is by far the largest contribution um, to, that we make towards climate change. And in a country that continues to witness the impacts of a warming climate, it's completely reckless that our government are even considering this mine. Furthermore, for our mob, the impacts of climate change and fossil fuel um, extraction go beyond what you see in the photos um, and on TV and hear about in the news. We don't just see the impacts, we feel them. Our country is a part of who we are. It's a part of our identity. From coral bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef to unpredictable seasons and changing weather patterns on top of the loss of native plants and wildlife. For many of us, we feel the pain that our country feels. We feel the pain of our ancestors and our old people who've lived sustainably and looked after this country for generations. We feel the pain of future generations who are inheriting this mess. I remember it was Mara Johnson who was in the um, video just before, youth spokesperson for the Wangan and Jagalingu people. She explained it by saying, if our country is sick, then so are we not just Indigenous people, but all people. The reason why so many young mob are a part of this movement is because we can't just stand by and watch our communities be walked over and trampled. We're sick of decisions being made about us without us. Right now, some of you might know that the Turnbull government have denied the rights of Indigenous peoples by rushing, trying to rush through changes to the Native Title Act in the interests of mining companies like Adani. Up until this afternoon, it also looked like Labor was going to support them. And we're going to keep the pressure up. But for generations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have fought so hard for land rights. And yet within a matter of weeks, this can all just be undone. All without any proper, proper consultation. A few days 
for submissions to be open is not proper consultation. One public hearing in Brisbane is not proper consultation. As Indigenous people, we have a cultural responsibility to protect country, but these native title amendments make it harder for us to fulfil this responsibility and make it easier for mining companies like Adani to destroy our land. But as grim as the world can seem today, we're not about to give up anytime soon. As the oceans are rising, people like yourselves are rising up too. And what gives me hope are the hundreds of thousands of young people right across Australia and the world who are rising up to this challenge, and we will be the ones who lead the change this world needs. Here in Australia, we're not alone. Right across the world, First Nations people are mobilising, organising and getting the job done. It's our communities on the front line who need to be at the forefront of change, leading the solutions that work for all people and not just for some. So I had a bit more in here that I was gonna to talk to you about in terms of the banks. Um, who knows that you know, Adani need money and that you know, we've been, been putting pressure on Australia's big four banks to not let them get it. Yeah? Yeah, so the power of the people over the last few years, we've seen NAB publicly rule it out, Commonwealth Bank um, and <laughs> ANZ, thank you, um, distance themselves as well, but Westpac is who we need to be focusing on. They claim to be one of the most sustainable banks, um, but you know they haven't distanced themselves from Adani. So we need to keep up the fight. I want to end um, that you know we, we're going to do everything that it takes to stop Adani from getting um, private money from the banks, but also public funding from our own government, from the Northern Australian Infrastructure Fund that they've promised a billion dollars from. So um, you're going to hear more about what we need to do and the strategy of this campaign. But for a minute, I just want you to imagine a world where the lives of all people are valued equally, where together we stand up for each other despite the colour of our skin, the amount of money in our pockets, or whether the problem is in my backyard or yours. To change everything, we need everyone. But right now, this is only a part of our vision, and it's up to us to create it. We can't let climate change be an issue that divides us. It needs to be an issue that unites us. So who's with me? <laughs> I'll talk about solar, which is my favorite thing to talk about. Uh, and you know, I feel a bit awkward coming here to the ACT and showing a picture of a beautiful solar rig in Sydney because the ACT, of course, is leading the charge in Australia. Uh, and want to really recognize that much of what I had to say in Brisbane and, and Sydney last night, probably don't need to say to you folk because you know it and you're doing it by 2020. Well done, 100%. Go ACT. But um, this is just a reminder of my story, which is that about 2006, I had a chat with the friends down at the Sydney Theatre Company, which is this roof, and uh, wanted to help them take it green and ended up doing a design, which I didn't get to build because them's the breaks in business sometimes, but someone else did, and it became the largest solar roof in Australia at the time. And since then, in the last decade only, it's gone to over one and a half million roofs like this with solar in Australia. So we have gone through in our lives this rooftop revolution where we've actually seen solar become mainstream. It's no longer alternative energy. In fact, by number of new additions to the electricity grid in the United States and in China and in big economies around the world, alternative energy is coal. We're not adding it to the grids of the world anymore in substantial numbers. To just give you some facts, 
the United Kingdom, the place where coal was kind of generalized for use to boil water to drive steam turbines, they're now using less per annum than they did in the 1800s. It's at the lowest point in over a century. In the United States, we've shut down 250 large coal power plants in the last five years. In the whole world, last year, new planned coal plants dropped off two-thirds, 66% were basically put on ice. Most substantially in India, and we'll come back to why that's salient on the Adani case, and in China. China actually just this year has already mothballed more coal plants than Australia's electricity grid capacity. So coal is crashing precipitously around the world. It's, it's actually one of the most dynamic and devastating shifts in uh, technology vested interest ever in any market, uh, you know, that you can think of. Faster than, you know, landline telephony being displaced by cell phones. Faster than, you know, cocaine being superseded by methamphetamines. It's, it's been a really dramatic change in a decade because solar's gone to scale and wind has too, just to give wind its props and it's solar too, I think. Wind is just transferring heat around the planet, so I call it solar power. But, um, you know, wind is now two-thirds the price pretty much anywhere you look of what you can get coal for. So in the Midwest of the United States right now, we're seeing existing coal plants, running ones, not new build, getting turned off for new build wind power plants because it's cheaper to do that, build something from scratch and run a wind power plant than to, to take a sunk cost like a coal power plant and continue to fuel it and do the O&M on it. That's the, the facts that we're starting to see in the energy markets around the world. All of which is incredibly important when considering these people that want to build this goddamn mine in Queensland because they're going to take a billion of your dollars as taxpayers to build something which is going to become a stranded asset. But the other thing I want to tell you is it doesn't have to be this way because there are lots of models where we can get off fossil fuels and uh, do it without them and still grow our economies and create great value and lots of jobs, 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 and we'll come back to that too. But the case I use is California. And again, apologies, being in the ACT, where you're doing this yourselves faster than California in some ways. Smaller, I'll give you that. You're only 300,000 people. They're about 40 million. But the story I try to just speak to in the Californian experience, which is where I've lived for the last 10 years, having built some companies and now having the privilege of running this California Clean Energy Fund, which invests in very early stage startups for the state government. Uh, and runs a network of incubators and accelerators and such. We basically took a decision 30 years ago, you could say, very clearly 20 years ago, to get off fossil fuels in California. And a lot of that was about energy efficiency and demand response. And then there was a commitment to renewables around the turn of the century. They, they stopped burning and digging up coal in California. And they've turned off contracts with coal electricity imported from outside the state. The last of those will go down in two years in Los Angeles. Some trickles of coal power come over the border from Nevada. And they've just built more and more renewables. They've got the biggest wind farm in the world, the biggest geothermal farm in the plant in the world, the biggest solar farms in the world, and lots of solar roofs like Australia has built in the last decade. And we've employed 500,000 Californians. And we haven't lost our shirts, right? California is a, a pretty vibrant economy, you could say. In fact, it's the vibrant economy in the United States. It's really the one that's carrying the can for the whole country coming out of the Great Recession. And it's created all these incredibly valuable companies while also 
shifting its electricity entirely, just transitioning its technology set from dirty to clean. So we've done Apple, you know, and Google, companies that you probably use the products and services of today or even right now because you're bored of listening to me spout facts. The, 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 the reality that we can do this, and by the way, Google, Apple, Facebook, they're all going 100% renewable of their own accord with direct access contracts for their own data centers, for their own offices. We help finance one of the, the Apple contracts as well. So we're able to do this while innovating, while creating jobs, and decoupling economic activity from fossil fuel use. It can be done. You're doing it. Amen. Hallelujah. Which brings me back to why this is going to be a stranded asset up in the Galilee. We're talking about a big boondoggle that's going to cost $20 billion. They need at least a billion of free money from the state. I mean, it's a concessional loan, allegedly. But, you know, we all know it's going to be sunk down the bottom of the capital stack. And they'll build their rail line to try to get it out to export uh, markets, namely India. But look at what's happening in India. As an investor, I look in due diligence at the market that the project is proposing to sell to. And the project in this case, Adani's coal mine, the Carmichael, is meant to go to India largely and some other Asian markets. But guess what? Piyush Goyal, the Minister of Power in India, has said very clearly he wants to get off imported coal altogether within three years. He wants to use domestic supplies for their thermal generating capacity. And they're shifting off thermal generating capacity and building gigawatts of solar. They've built 10 gigawatts in three years. They have a national mission to do 100 gigawatts by 2022. And that's not to mention the wind and the other renewables that they're also building out. Because the price drives the market. And this is numbers from the last quarter where we're seeing cost of electricity coming out of the back of solar farms in India lower than what thermal generation can sell coal power for in India. So the likelihood that Adani actually has a market to sell to is very slim in five years. The thing will probably go bust as these fossil fuel plants do through their boom-bust cycle and will be left to you. The losses will be socialized as they are, not just in terms of the externalized costs of climate change and the death of the barrier reef and the agricultural jobs around the region and the tourism jobs and all that, but that billion dollars won't get repaid either, I bet. So that's the story that I think is going to come out of this hole in the ground if it's allowed to proceed, which is why we have to stop Adani. And the reason we should be able to show a lie to this whole thing and why the politicians should not be allowed to get away with this is because, as you know, they're using the rhetoric of jobs, jobs, jobs to justify all this. But the trick here is they're caught out on that. The fact is we create more jobs per unit of energy, per dollar invested, however you want to measure it, in clean energy technology sets than dirty energy technology sets. It's between three and seven times more per kilowatt hour generated, depending on which technology you're displacing, coal, gas, diesel, or whether you're using wind, solar, distributed solar, etc. But point being, we create lots more jobs. In fact, in the United States, our experience has been that we employ two and a half times as many people in the clean energy economy in more than 30 states than oil, gas, and coal production. There's only about 70,000 coal miners left in the United States. There's 260,000 solar installers and workers in different factors and parts of the value chain in, in the United States. 
And we're at like 5% of electricity supplied across the country. They're at like 33% of electricity supplied. Around the world, the story is the same. In China, under the 13th five-year plan, which intends to spend $160 billion on clean energy, one of the reasons they're doing it is that they're going to get 13 million jobs in clean energy in China in the next five years. In Australia, we've already seen this. We've already done investments through the CEFC and ARENA in regional Queensland with a half dozen solar farms and a wind farm. They put about $70 million of concessional money into those projects in different ways. And those projects employed 2,218 people. So Adani, with its billion dollar subsidy, is purporting to employ 1,480 people. Each of those jobs is probably a fly-in, fly-out job or one for someone driving a robotic Tonka truck in a mine pit a thousand miles away from Brisbane or something. It's, it's just a joke to use a billion dollars to subsidize Adani when you could buy literally tens of thousands of jobs for everyone in regional Queensland to come here to the ACT to build out your 100% renewable plans. So that's all good facts. I'm happy to provide you with more if you want, but truthfully, having been in Australia on and off over the last 46 years and been involved in the Franklin, I know that this is going to take an army, not an argument. It's not about the facts. These people aren't rational. They're not looking at this like an investor. They need to be made to stop this, and they will stop this because you turn out in the streets, you boycott the banks that are financing it, and if you have to, you go to the ballot box and you displace the politicians that stand up and lie and say this thing will deliver jobs and value. This thing will destroy values across the ecosystem and our country and our culture, and this thing will destroy jobs. Looking in from a state like California, which as you've described, has ambitious renewable targets and a booming renewable industry, what would Australia need to do to emulate this model and what would it mean for regional areas like Townsville? First thing, you know, when you're in a hole, you've got to stop digging. So they, they should not be commissioning whole new reserves like the Galilee Basin and trying to start again into the 19th century model of Quarry Australia. They should be sending clear long-term signals and certainty to attract investment so that they can really build it out. The kind of policy and, and politics that ACT, again, has, mm. has really shown by setting the mark and, and building on it and achieving it in great ways. If Australia were to do that, I'm 100% confident you could have a fantastic diversification and, and portfolio of wind, solar and other projects. Storage, you know, we've done that in California just in the last couple of years, really building out our storage capacity employ lots of people in distributed ways. You know, it's a distributed architecture, this new energy network that we're building, and build value for Australian companies, not foreign companies and, and holes yeah. in the ground. And, you know, I mean, there are good signs here, aside from the ACT's leadership. You know, just today I see that the Lion folk are putting in 100 megawatts of storage in a big solar farm in South Australia with or without the Weatherall competition. Lots more of that to be had. And we've got to repower Australia. We've got to phase all the dirty stuff out. And uh, we've got to just get on with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, um, Vishali, the story of Adani's environmental legacy in India is actually heartbreaking, isn't it? In Australia, our politicians are telling us that India needs our coal. Is this actually true? And, and what are your concerns about that? Wherever there have been... Uh uh, coal projects, whether it is mining or the energy projects, 
thousands of the farmers and fisher folks have lost their livelihood. Yeah. There had been a, a disease around, skin disease, so many like respiratory disease, and there had been already a research done on this in this area. Mm. So coal has not given us uh, real energy, which we need it. Coal has not given us good health. No. Coal has actually taken away our, our, all our traditional livelihood. And coal has been a disaster for us. And I don't see in this disaster where is humanity. Yeah, where is humanity? Blair, have you got any, any thoughts or comments on that? Uh, just a couple. I, I think one thing Vishali and I have talked to you a little bit about, when we were up in Brisbane doing the roadshow talk, one of the newspapers suggested that those who are fighting the Adani coal mine were racist because we were denying Indians, poor Indians, the chance to have energy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you have to think about how turned around that thought <laughs> really is. We are a group of people who want to stop a coal mine because it's bad for Australia. It's also bad for India. India is ready to make the transition to clean energy. The last thing they need is help with more polluting coal. What they really need help with is how to make that transition more effectively and leapfrog past the mistakes that many of us have made in the developed world on energy. Um, and that takes health into concern, our environment, in our case, the coral reef. But more importantly, the climate impacts, all the things we know from uh, the impacts we're already seeing from our commitment in Paris and what that means. I mean, as Danny said earlier, the commitment is very clear. There can be no new coal, oil, or gas. If we're going to live up to those commitments and try and keep our global warming temperatures below two degrees and, and attempt a safe living climate, that's true in India. That's also true in Australia. So the answer is clear. We don't need to give them coal. They don't need our coal. What we all need is the transition plan and to get on with it. Exactly. And just, just one last question for Millie. Um, you mentioned um, about engaging the Indigenous communities. How are their communities engaging with the conversation about renewable energy? Yeah, so much. I mean, I mean, it's really hard, you know, like, I feel like for at least in my youth, <laughs> um, which, you know, I'm quite Still young. Still there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but at least for my whole life um, and the stories that I've heard from um, my family and, and communities and people that I meet around the country, like, we're exhausted of saying no. Like, mm. we constantly just have to fight and fight. And it's, you know, no to Adani, like, no to fracking in the Northern Territory, no to this, no to that. Um, and I think we, we really do want to be a part of building solutions that work for our communities. Um, and, but we need to actually be supported to do that. Um, and it's very hard to do that whilst we're still fighting. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I was really lucky though, um, I met one of my idols who I've looked up to for quite some time, Melina Massimo, um, an Indigenous woman from Canada, who um, some of you might have heard of the incredible story of the work that they've been doing um, their communities faced um, the destruction of their country from the tar sands. Um, so, you know, it's devastating. Um, but at the same time, they've mobilised their community and they've built a solar farm um, that powers the health centre there, it, it powers the school, it provides an economy. Um, and, you know, they've educated people about it at the same time. And here in Australia, we do have communities that are um, doing the same. We've just, you know, we've started to see Aboriginal... Um, 
part owned like a solar battery storage companies. We, um, with Melina's visit to Australia, we saw the launch of our First Nations Renewable Energy Network. Um, young people um, who we work with, particularly up in Borroloola, um, are, are trying to actually, you know, when we're in Parliament lobbying politicians, they're not just talking about the projects that we want to say no to, they're saying we have the vision for alternative um, economies, we want solar, we want, you know, um, we want ecotourism, we want all these different forms of development for our people that don't exploit our culture and our land. So, you know, it, it's a hard battle out there, but I think, you know, we have to have hope and we need people like you to stand with us and to not only fight and say no, um, but to build the solutions. Isaac and I have been working with 13 organizations around the country who are all keen on stopping Adani. And that's, you know, a little bit unusual. 13 groups, very different, have put aside their different styles there are different issues and decided that this is the line in the sand issue for Australia at this moment. This is our issue. This is our tar sands moment and we are at a point in time where we have to choose between an old way of doing things, a polluting way of doing things and the clean energy future. And Adani offers us that choice. And our federal government needs to hear from all of us and our state governments to understand how important we think this issue is. So we've heard from speakers Danny, Vishali, and, you know, and even right here in traditional owner lands that are fighting all kinds of challenges around the same issues. But it all comes back to the same kind of challenge, which is making the change, but having the force of political will and people behind it to make it happen. So that's what we, Isaac and I have come to talk to you about. How can we all get active on these issues? How can we make a change? And first of all, I think it's really important to say that the plan we've come up with, you know, it's a multi and varied plan. Uh, the 13 organizations involved have tried lots of different tactics over the years, and we think we've put together a plan that covers off the best way we can go at this. But we're gonna also be open to hearing from you as time goes on and hear new ideas. So those organizations are the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, the Australian Conservation Foundation, Get Up, some folks here in the crowd from Get Up as well. The Some of Us globally, which is fantastic because it's an international organization. Uh, Market Forces, which does fantastic work on how we get at the money and how we stop money going into fossil fuels. The Australian Marine Conservation Society and a range of others, but 350.org is our organization and we're working here in Australia, but also getting help from our global colleagues to try and raise awareness about the Adani mine and how we stop it. So there are a few key areas that I'd love to just put you. three areas that we think are going to be the way to stop this mine. So are you with me? Are we going to be able to work together to get this mine going and off yeah. the table? Yeah. Fantastic. That's our plan. So the three key areas are first, building the movement. Second, shifting the politics. And third, stopping the money. So quickly, I'm just going to mention building the movement. Why? Well, we all know this mine has a lot of dark forces behind it. It's got money behind it. It's got politicians behind it. It's got influence behind it, and a lot of influence going along behind the scenes that we don't even know about. Mm. So to take that on, it's going to take all of us. It's going to take a movement in Australia and a voice from international sources as well to say, we're not going to take it, we're not going to accept it, we're going to do what we can, and we're going to stop it.